I'm so excited to, to have the chance to open God's word with you. I'm so excited for uh, the chance to, to conclude this uh, retreat by talking about the outcome or the results of the one another's. The one another's are in and of themselves results. Uh, Matt did a great job of explaining that to us. They are expressions of fruits of the spirit, but they also result in something else. They also have an outcome themselves. As you're thinking about that, I want to ask you a question. Uh, what makes a car valuable? What makes a car valuable? Why do people value cars? Why do you maybe value your own car? Uh, I think if I were to ask that question to 10 different people, I'd get maybe 10 different answers. Because depending on the kind of person you are, uh, something about that car would make it valuable to you. And, you know, if I asked a, a car person what makes a car valuable, they'd probably get into the technical stuff, right? They'd talk about the V8 engine instead of the V6 engine. Pretty much all I got. I'm not a car guy. Uh, they'd talk about the technical stuff. Uh, but if I asked a, a mother of a newborn baby, uh, she'd probably talk about the safety features, right? Uh, maybe she'd talk about the airbags or the state-of-the-art seat belts. Uh, she'd talk about the, the reliability of that car as what makes it valuable to her because it keeps her and her family safe. If you ask Erica what makes a car valuable, you'd say the little beepy sensors that tell you when you're about to crash into the wall because she doesn't like to park in close spaces. Uh, but if you ask me what, what makes a car valuable, I'd probably tell you that it's just the fact that it gets me from point A to point B. For me, what makes a car valuable is what it does for me. It's its function. It's what it produces. And, and I think both answers are, are equally valid to what makes a car valuable, right? It's both what it is and what it produces, what it does. Uh, cars are valuable because they're made of a lot of really expensive things. There's parts in cars that have precious metals, uh, they have specialized engines that, that are designed for that purpose of taking you from one place to another, but they're also valuable because of the, the function that they have. I looked this up uh, this past week. Google Maps says that 424 veteran to Grace Community Church is 20, 25 minutes, no traffic. By car. By foot. Six hours and 32 minutes. If you don't think a car is valuable because of what it produces, then walk to church on Sunday. And then you will value a car. A car is, is both valuable because of what it is, what it's made of, and what it produces, what it does. And the one another's of Scripture aren't any different. The one another's of Scripture are both valuable because of what they are and because of what they do. Now, there's certainly a lot of overlap between those two things. Uh, but Matt's first two sessions focused more on what they are, right? Uh, Thursday night, we saw the, the core sort of underlying fundamental principles of the heart behind the one another's. And then yesterday morning, we saw this, this breakdown of what they actually were, what, what you do when you do a one another. Uh, Matt broke it down like this, 59, 60-ish of these things broken down by acts of giving, listening, speaking, and praying. That's what they are. Uh, it's not a burdensome kind of to-do list. It, it's an outworking of the Holy Spirit. But that's what the one another's are. They're these everyday expressions of, of the Spirit in your life, this giving of yourself to each other, 
this listening to one another, speaking truth in love to one another, praying for each other. That's what they are, and, and they are beautiful in and of themselves. If we stopped right there, the one another's are beautiful because they are following in the footsteps of Jesus. Uh, the one another's in and of themselves are, are valuable in God's economy because they are acts of worship. But the one another's are also valuable because of what they lead to. The one another's are valuable because of what they produce. The one another's happen because you have been changed, but they also change you. If you're going to commit to pursuing the one another's, you will see that they bring about a change in your life. And that change in your life that they result in, that they produce, is also eternally valuable in God's economy. You see, Scripture speaks of the one another's as God's means for accomplishing his purpose in his people. The, the one another's are, are spoken of in Scripture as, as the way that God shapes and forms a Christian into the likeness of Christ. And God chooses to use these one another's, giving, listening, speaking, and praying, and all 61, two-ish of them, he uses them as, as, as his divine sort of chisel to, to, to make you into an accurate representation of Jesus Christ. By God's design, these one another's will leave you beautiful like Christ. They will leave you with the ability to represent Christ on earth. That's what I want to show you from God's word this morning. We're going to see three marks that the one another's will leave on the church that practices them. Three marks that the one another's will leave on the church that practices them. And I say church because the one another's can't exist without one another. Uh, the one another's require at least one other person. And don't get me wrong, they, they do absolutely change you on an individual level, but they change everybody around you too. They change the people that you are doing the one another's with. Whatever mark they leave on you, they're also going to leave on the person you practice them with. And so today we're going to see these three marks that the one another's will leave, not just on you, but on, on the church that practices them. That includes you. It's been my prayer in, in preparation this past week, and really even every, every time I've gotten to talk to Matt about this and this whole summer, that you would see that the one another's are absolutely essential. Uh, that you would see that there's an urgency in Scripture for us to pursue the one another's. Three marks. We're going to start with this one. A, a church marked by unity. Uh, a church that practices the one another's will be a church marked by unity. It's not an overstatement to say that uh, unity is one of the most emphasized themes of all the Bible. Uh, you can turn many pages in your New Testament without stumbling upon some kind of discussion about unity. Uh, and it's so common, and for good reason, but it's so common that I don't want it to just sit in our minds as, as kind of, you know, a Christian buzzword. I don't want us to just think Christian unity and say, yeah, we are unified, because that's what Christians are. It's true, but I, I want to sort of break this down for us. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, I just want to clarify what the Bible means when it talks about unity. Ephesians 4, uh, we're going to start in Ephesians 
4, 4 through 6. Just look at verses 4 through 6 with me. Uh, in these verses, Paul identifies the, the spiritual reality of unity. This is the first aspect of unity that I want to talk about. It's, it's the spiritual reality of unity. Look at the beginning of verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, this kind of unity simply just is for the Christian. If you've trusted in Christ, then, then there is a unity that you have with every single other Christian. Uh, this isn't something that you manufacture or make or work on. If you are in Christ, you are unified with all of Christ's people. That's what Paul is saying. There is one body. It's a fact. That kind of unity is, is founded upon the, the oneness in Christ. You, you see that in, in the text? There's one body. There's one spirit. How, how can we worship one God if we're not worshiping in one spirit? Because the spirit is God. How can we claim allegiance to God if we don't all have one Lord? If we don't all have one faith that saves? You see, there's, there's an exclusivity to Christianity. And that exclusivity is what unifies us. Because we've trusted in the one true God. We've trusted in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you have, then, then you are, as a fact, unified to everybody else. It's kind of like the transitive property in math, right? If I'm unified to Christ, Christ is unified to John MacArthur, and Riley is unified to John MacArthur. Let's go. That's awesome. And that's true of, of all Christians because of our oneness in Christ. But there is a, another biblical aspect of unity, which is not so much an inward reality, but an outward expression. Listen to the words of Kevin DeYoung. He explains this exceptionally well. Kevin DeYoung says, Unity is a relational good that we are called to maintain where true spiritual unity is already present. The call to unity is the, is the summons to show in relational practice what is already true in spiritual reality. The, the summons to show in relational practice what is already true in spiritual reality. That kind of relational unity, that's the unity that is the product of the one another's. Look back to Ephesians 4, but now read verses 1 through 3 with me. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, Paul is, is urging the Ephesian church to live in such a way that they are, again, in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That word maintain is so important because when we live out the one another's and when we do the one another's, we're not just creating unity out of thin air. We're not just 
manufacturing some sort of unity that isn't already there. There is a given inward spiritual unity that we have in Jesus Christ. But we are to maintain that unity. We are to pursue an outward expression of that unity by how we interact with one another. In verses 1 and 2, we, we only see that, that phrase or that, that Greek word, one another, only one time. But the rest of the commands are absolutely other-centered. Look at them with me. We'll walk in humility and, and gentleness and patience. Remember, Philippians calls humility this, this counting others as more significant than yourselves. And unless Paul is telling you to be gentle with yourself, he's saying be gentle with those around you. Be patient with those around you. All of these other-centered commands, and especially the, the bearing with one another explicitly, they all exercise that same heart of the one another's. They all exercise that same following of Christ in his footsteps. And they all, verse 3, maintain the unity of the Spirit. I mean, do you see how outward and related uh, relational oneness doesn't just come by unified thinking? Do you see how, how the, the unity that we are called to in the body of Christ isn't just unified doctrine or unified theology. Paul doesn't say, you know, convince everyone to agree with your theological position so that you can maintain the unity that's there. He doesn't, he doesn't say convince people to serve in the way that you do so that you can maintain unity or to think in the way that you do or, or to like the same preaching style or the same musical style as you do to maintain unity. No, verse 2 says, be humble. Just be gentle. Be patient. Bear difficult things with one another in love. These one another's, they're not fabricating fake, cheap unity. They're not sweeping differences under the rug or trying to just eliminate all differences. Being gentle, being patient, bearing with one another isn't pretending that differences don't exist, but We'll look ahead to verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. One another driven ministry actually needs those differences. One another driven ministry actually needs some kind of diversity so that the saints can be properly equipped for the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And don't miss this in verse, uh, verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, one another driven ministry builds unity not by destroying differences, not by forcing people to like what you like and, and do what you do, but it does it by helping people to be more like Jesus. It, it, it does it by helping us to measure up more and more to the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 13. You see, when, when people are drawn to a, a common attraction, they inevitably get closer together, right? 
in a few weeks, maybe just a few days here at UCLA, thousands of people are going to come from all over the world, and all of a sudden, they're going to be shoulder to shoulder, right next to each other, because they have this common attraction of education at UCLA. One another driven ministry points people to that common attraction of Jesus Christ. One another driven ministry helps people to see Christ and to be conformed into his image. And that's where our unity comes from. Because if I'm becoming more like Christ and you're becoming more like Christ, well then we're going to become more like each other as we become more like Christ. That unity, it's, it's cultivated and nurtured. It's maintained by the one another's of Scripture. And that, that kind of unity is what should distinguish the church. That, that kind of unity is what should make the church a city on a hill, a light in a dark place that's different from everywhere else. Because the world says to, to love yourself first, right? The world says to care about yourself, you know, get ahead of everyone else. Uh, it says you can be totally independent. You don't, you don't need them. But the one another driven unity that, that comes in the church that makes that kind of thinking impossible. Listen to the words of, of Sinclair Ferguson, an incredible Scottish theologian. and I'm not going to say it in his accent because it would be embarrassing, but maybe imagine it. Sinclair Ferguson says, The little green monsters of pride, self-sufficiency, self-interest, and me-firstness find themselves starved of oxygen in the atmosphere of grace. That is the church. The one another's leave a, a mark of unity on the church, and it distinguishes it from everything else in this world. That's the first mark of a church living out the one another's. It's a church marked by unity. Second mark that the one another's will leave on the church that practices them is security. Security. I don't mean uh, patrol cars and scary looking dudes at the end of the aisles with slightly oversized suits. That's not what I mean by security. By security, I mean eternal security. I mean a, a steadfast, an unshakable hope in what the future holds. That's what the Bible often calls it. calls it hope. And again, hope is such a, a common word, I, I want to clarify it a little bit. First uh, Peter 1 calls the, the hope of a Christian uh, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. It's not the kind of hope that you have when you maybe watch a, a sports game, when you're watching UCLA play basketball just hoping for them to win, not really sure what's going to happen. Uh, but biblical hope, when, when you see hope in Scripture, it speaks to something that is sure. It speaks to something that is guaranteed and, and totally secure. Uh, it's like, it's like uh, if you were a kid uh, and, and you wanted a bike for Christmas. If you wanted a bike for Christmas, you've been dropping hints to your parents all year. You know, man, I, I, what would it be like to get from that place to that place on two wheels instead of four, you know, on my own instead of you driving me. Well, there's a solution for that. It's a bike, right? But you don't say that. You're, you're dropping hints. You want a bike for Christmas. And then come Christmas Eve, December 24th, you sort of peek out into the living room when you should be in bed, and you see a, a brand new bike in the middle of your living room. 
You see a, a roll of wrapping paper right next to it, and your mom is sitting down getting ready to wrap the thing. Well, you go to sleep with the hope of having that bike in the morning. Uh, and then Christmas morning comes, you run out to the tree, and there's a, like a bike-shaped glob of wrapping paper right next to the tree. And the only thing separating you from having hope for a bike and actually having a bike is just your parents saying it's time to open presents. And that's, that's what hope is in the Bible. It is sure. It, it's guaranteed. You know that it's coming. It's only maybe one step removed from reality. It is a reality that's just waiting to happen. And the hope of a, of a Christian is is secured. It is a future reality. And that's what we tend to call the, the assurance of our salvation. It's what we call the, the perseverance of our faith. Uh, we know the outcome of our faith because it's God who started this work in us, and it's God who will complete it. And so we can, we can have an assurance that our salvation will bring us to heaven. And we know that our faith will persevere. That's what our eternal security is, but how does that relate to the one another's? What do the one another's have to do with the eternal security of the church? Well, in the same way that unity is a result or an outcome of the one another's, so is eternal security. Eternal security is a result of the one another's. And I want to be very, very careful here. Scripture is abundantly clear that your eternity is absolutely in the hands of God, and not you. Right? Romans 8. Uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 1 says that our souls have been sealed for heaven, sealed for eternity if we have faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so the, the, the eternal security that the Christian has is absolutely found in the sovereign and unfailing hands of God himself. But turn to Hebrews 3 with me. Turn to Hebrews 3 just for a moment. I want, us to help, I want to help us understand how the Bible teaches about eternal security. Hebrews chapter 3, look at verses 12 through 14. Uh, Matt referenced this in one of his sermons earlier, but it's just such a critical text in, in really understanding what the Bible teaches about the Christian's eternal security. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, read this with me. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The kind of faith that grants eternal security is only the kind of faith that endures, verse 14, to the end. I'm a Calvinist. I believe in the phrase, once saved, always saved, but we, we can't just use that as an excuse for cheap faith. 
yes, God is sovereign over your eternity, but he is also sovereign over the means by which you get to that eternity. God decides your eternity, and God decides how you're going to get there. And he has decided that those means are the one another's. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that or so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In his perfect wisdom, God has designed a a built-in mechanism for our faith so that it endures to the end. And that is the one another's. Faith that lives out the one another's is faith that endures to the end. Faith lived out with a Christian on your left and and a Christian on your right is the kind of faith that you can have assurance in. Turn over a few pages to Hebrews 10 and we'll see a similar pattern. Hebrews 10, 24, it's a verse that you probably know relatively well. But just read that with me. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We usually stop there, but look at verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You see, the one another commands that we know and love so much in verses 24 and 25, stir up one another to love and good works, meet together, encourage one another, they are all so essential. They are all so indispensable because the alternative is verses 26 and 27. The alternative is spiraling in high-handed sin that leads to death and judgment. You see, real faith is faith that endures to the end. And faith endures to the end when it is lived out with one another. There is no category in the Bible for isolated faith. There is no category in Scripture for faith that does not live itself out with one another. Real faith endures to the end. And faith that endures to the end lives out the one another's. And this is why Matt's first session was so important. Uh, Because exhorting and encouraging and admonishing one another in your way doesn't count. Uh, You doing it on your terms isn't going to result in an eternal product. God's way does, and only God's way. These are, the the one another's are, are specific instructions to to love people in the way that God has, to love on God's terms. That's why we have things like, like church discipline. Right? If we had it our way, maybe we wouldn't have that hard conversation. But God's way of love is to call out other people in their sin, to, to bring it up to them. And, and if they don't listen to us, then bring other people along who, who do see that sin and, and show them their sin. Rebuke one another, correct one another because their eternity is at stake. Things like church discipline, things like like correction and admonishment exist 
because their souls are at stake. The one another's exist because our souls are at stake. That's how God has designed the Christian life to be lived out. Your eternal security must be found in your life in the church. Yes, in the sovereignty of God, but, but in the sovereignty of God that has ordained the church to be the means by which you reach eternity. One another's aren't arbitrary acts of service. They are patterned and, and pointing to the life of Christ. Living out the one another's, you, you point people to God. And as you do, you, you help their soul along to eternity. Now again, the, the one another's require two people. And so eternal security is, is a gift for both parties involved. If you are living out the one another's, you will gain a greater assurance of your faith because you'll see it played out right in front of you. And when you encourage someone else, they will be encouraged to persevere in their faith because of what you're saying, because of what you're giving, because of how you're praying. The whole church gets to experience this gift of assurance, this gift of eternal security because of how we love one another. And that's the second mark that the one another's have on the church, eternal security. We've seen the one another's produce unity and security in the church. And this is going to be the third and last mark that we'll talk about this morning. The one another's leave on the church is credibility. Credibility. A church that lives out the one another's is a church marked by credibility. Would you believe me if I told you that on my way to retreat on Thursday afternoon, uh, a semi-truck flattened my car with me in it? Uh, what about this? Would you believe me if I told you I was six feet tall with blonde hair? No, <laughs> of course not. You wouldn't, right? Because the evidence is not there. The, the plain evidence is not right in front of you. Telling you I got ran over, but I'm standing right here talking to you. Telling you I'm six feet, 5'11 and a half. Uh, I'm telling you I have blonde hair, but I have black hair, as you can see. Of course you don't believe me because the evidence is not there. Well, well why should anyone believe the message of the church? Or why should anyone believe what we are about in the church if the evidence is not there. Turn over to 2 Corinthians with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. 2 Corinthians 5 20. It's a very short verse, but so important for our understanding of what's at stake in our living out the one another. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. Paul writes, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. You can stop right there. And Paul calls Christians ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors are, are representatives of the one who sent them to some kind of foreign land or, or other place. Ambassadors are, for all intents and purposes, manifestations of the sender in that foreign place. If you're a Christian, you are literally, the, the word means a little Christ. 
You are a manifestation of Jesus on earth. Look at verse 20 again. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Do you understand the gravity of that sentence? God once made his appeal to the world through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews says that long ago he spoke to the prophets in many ways, but now he's spoken to us by his son. As Christians, as little Christ, God is now making his appeal to the world through us. We are representatives of God. We are supposed to represent Jesus to a watching world. We're supposed to be signposts that continually point over and over to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We're the vehicle by which God is, is telling the world to repent and be saved. It's through us that the message of salvation goes forth. And I've got to ask the question, is that message believable? It is true, but does it look that way in your life? Is it credible? If we as a church are not living out the one another's, then it's not. Why would you expect someone to believe that you have a gracious God if you're not being gracious to one another? If you're not being gracious to people made in the image of God? Uh, would God really sacrifice for people if God's people can't even sacrifice for each other? If God's ambassadors here on earth say that we love people, and then you hear us gossiping about one another, you hear us putting one another down, what does that say about our God? Our theme verse for this retreat, John thirteen thirty five. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John says that people know you follow Jesus by your love for one another. So what happens if you don't? What happens if you don't have love for one another? Well, for one, I think the, the, the obvious question is, am I following Jesus? Am I really walking in the footsteps of Christ? And that's the point we made about our eternal security. If you're not headed towards Jesus, where are you headed? If you're not following in the footsteps of Christ into heaven, then where are you going? And true faith follows the footsteps of Christ. But if we are true disciples of Christ, if we really have trusted in him for our salvation, and we really have been given a new heart, and our, one, and our love for one another isn't on display, well, then we seriously handicap ourselves as ambassadors for Christ. If we really are disciples of Christ, but we aren't loving one another, as John says in John 13, 35, then our witness for Christ is hindered. Our testimony, the, the credibility of our testimony about who Jesus is, is severely damaged and hindered because we are supposed to represent him. People are supposed to see Jesus in us. And if we're not loving one another, then, well, if we're lucky, they'll see a deficiency in us. If we're failing to love one another, they'll see an inconsistency between us and Christ. 
But what if they attribute our lovelessness to our Lord? If you are found not loving one another, you would be lucky if someone saw an inconsistency with you in Jesus. But as ambassadors for Christ, as people who are claiming to be representatives of God on earth in the church, what is that saying about God? What if they attribute those deficiencies to Jesus' love? What if they attribute that inconsistency to God? If we tell everyone we follow Jesus and, and we have a great fellowship, it's called GOC, and we study the Bible better than anybody, and we sing better songs than all the other fellowships, but we're not loving one another, what does that say about Jesus to a watching world? Why should people believe that God is love if God's people don't love? If we can be identified with Jesus on the basis of, of our love for one another, then we have our marching orders as ambassadors for Christ. If how we identify with Jesus is through love, then we are an effective ambassador for Christ when we love. Our exercising of the one another's is an expression of love. Love one another is this catch-all one another, validating, giving credibility to the gospel that we proclaim church that preaches forgiveness needs to be able to forgive. church that preaches patience needs to be able to be patient with one another. The testimony of the church of, of unfathomable grace is only validated by gracious one another's. These one another's, they're, they're a special, special opportunity for us to accurately represent who Jesus is. To, to a watching world. The world is wondering, is this gospel true? Does it work? Can it save? Yes. Look at our lives. Our lives have been changed from the inside out. We were once selfish, but now we're giving of ourselves to each other. We were once prideful, but now we're counting others as more significant than ourselves. Is the gospel true? Yeah, it is. Because it changed us. We can prove it because we are all living in a different way than we were before we were saved. What does your life say about the credibility of the gospel? As we prepare to go back to UCLA in, in just a few hours, I really hope that this is just the beginning of your relationship with the one another. I hope that if nothing else, the, the weight, uh, the gravity, the urgency of these commands of scripture has has hit you in a new and fresh way and i hope that it causes you to pursue them all the more to pursue them with with passion and and with specificity uh, there's so many of these things that we can commit ourselves to growing in and working on and it's not like a, like a checklist or a to-do list we don't do them with a, a heart of pride or, or legalism but as an overflow of love for God and for his people. I really urge you and I pray that you would recognize the, the profound God-honoring good that you can have in someone else's life. It is a profound thing that you can help someone on to eternity.
and they can help you on to eternity. It's a profound thing that you get to give credibility to the gospel. You get to show people that, yes, it is true. You can be saved. And especially as we prepare to welcome thousands of new students to UCLA, to the dorms, to the apartments, in our classes, consider how your actions identify you with Jesus. Consider what your life says about his life. Consider whether or not you are, you are accurately representing his heart to those around you. I think it's appropriate that we end this text, or end with this text from Philippians 2. I think it'll be helpful for us as we conclude this retreat to open our Bibles to Philippians 2 one more time. We've been referencing this passage all weekend, and I think if we leave with this passage in our mind, we will be well served to live out these one another's on our campus in a few hours. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.